how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to episode 430, where I sat down with Frederic Fabricius, a neuroscientist and the author of The Brain-Friendly Workplace. This book is a smart, science-based approach to retaining talent, finding better places to work, and making the world a better place. In this interview, we talk about how the body and brain are connected, why sleep is a washing machine for the brain, how to break up your day for laser focus, why many deep thinkers feel drained in fast-paced jobs, internal, internal diversity in the workplace, and ways to feel better both today and for your future self. If it's your first time here, make sure to subscribe. You can also get my first book, Ink by the Barrel, Secrets from Prolific Writers, based on this podcast for free. That's over at brockswinson.com to get the book and audiobook. I've always been very interested in people. So originally, I wanted to study philosophy. I, you know, I had an interest in people and I thought thinking about people would help. But then by accident, I stumbled into a psychology lesson or seminar at the university where I was checking out philosophy. And it really struck me like lightning. It was really fascinating. I thought it's much better to really experiment so we can observe people and see how they really behave rather than just thinking about how they may behave. And so that's when I decided on psychology. And then later on, when I was studying, I realized that all the new insights and all the really new revelations were being made in the field of neuroscience. And so I, I did my final studies and specializations in neuroscience. That was back when I was living in Italy. And then I went to the Max Planck Institute for Brain Research and, and worked there. So it's always been an interest in people, both a deeper understanding of how they tick, what makes them tick, and then also the willingness to help people lead better lives. Uh, with neuroscience for like individuals like everyone's kind of obsessed with productivity peak performance what should individuals know about neuroscience to improve their own lives or at least maybe a starting point i think it's so important to understand that the body and the brain are connected so if you want to positively influence your brain, you may want to start with your body because it's the easiest way. So let's say if you exercise, you will immediately get brain-derived neurotrophic factor, dopamine, serotonin, endorphins, all of which make your brain function better. If you sleep enough, um, sleep is like a washing machine for your brain. So when you sleep, you immediately get that positive impact of all that toxins being flushed out of your brain. So I think it's important to understand that sleep, exercise, sunlight, anything you do to your body will positively impact your brain, even the food you eat and all of that. I think that's the easiest starting point to improve your brain. Do you think there's maybe a problem with the way we've currently maybe like as a kid growing up, I was only told to work out for sports. I was told to go outside, but there wasn't a reason. I feel like you're explaining everything more. So can you go into some more details about 
like uh, parents raising children, how can they kind of explain these things like brain health, not just, you know, go do this with no explanation? I think that's so important. Well, first of all, maybe what parents will love to hear is that there is a very robust relationship between cognitive performance as measured in, for example, your grade point average and things in academic performance and how much you move. So it will make you smarter. So rather than spending more time studying, I would spend more time moving because then when you study, you're so much more efficient, you're faster, you can brain can process things faster. So there's the impact of, you know, movement on your cognitive performance But there's also the impact of movement on your mental health. So it instantly lifts your mood. It removes anxiety. It makes you more motivated. So I think it's an easy way to feel better immediately. You don't have to take any pills. You don't have to do anything artificial. It's instantaneous. I think that enough. And then also there's the impact on learning per se. We know that when we move, the brain releases brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which helps us to grow more new neurons. So it helps with learning as well. And I think we can also feel that. I think immediately when we move, we feel better. And our brains are designed to be in bodies that move. That's how our ancestors have lived. They moved a lot more. And I think our brains don't thrive and don't feel as good when we don't move. So it's really a matter of both performance and well-being, are there things, which both um, are positively impacted. Are there things you particularly do? Do you try to go outside in the morning? Do you do you break up maybe active, active moments too? Do you break up those throughout the day? Anything that could help people kind of plan their day for you know, as much brain activity as possible. Yeah. So if we look at a a day, let's start with the morning. In the morning, it's important to jumpstart your system. You can exercise. um, You can go outside for a few minutes to get daylight exposure. That will spark your cortisol. That in the morning, cortisol is good because it gives you energy. It makes you active. It makes you want to do things. Maybe sometimes you've woken up and feeling sluggish and a bit unmotivated. So getting daylight and moving are good ways to to boost your metabolism in the morning in your brain. And then you get a dopamine spike, um, which gives you more motivation and you get a serotonin spike, which then later at night, 12 hours later, gets transformed into melatonin, which helps you fall asleep. So in the morning, I would say you need to like jump start your organism with something active and then the most productive time from a biorhythm point of view is during the mornings Mm -hmm. so I would I would really I usually if I'm want to be productive I really schedule uninterrupted time something I call a meeting of one Mm -hmm. without any smartphone with any notifications so that's the time when you can really get into flow and do something you know really get stuff done most people experience a bit of like a energy low after lunch. Mm-hmm. I personally think if you can, you can lean into it and take a small nap or some mindfulness meditation. I don't think we necessarily have to fight it. it depends on what kind of work environment you have, of course, and how accepted that is. But I personally like to either nap or meditate after lunch to because it's a natural low. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it shouldn't be too long. Otherwise, we can't fall asleep in the evening and work. Otherwise, if your work environment is one where you can't allow yourself um, to do such things, then, of course, a short walk after lunch will take you out of that low again. And then in the afternoon, it's often good to schedule more creative tasks because we're a bit more tired um, less laser focused. So it's a good moment to to do things that are a bit more, you know, where you don't have to be analytical, where you have to be maybe a bit more creative. Hmm. So like in the morning would be more for rational thinking, the afternoon more um, for creative thinking. And then I think it's very important to have an end to your day, even if you work remotely, even if you don't have an office you go to, these days, you know, it's different for different people. I think you need to have some kind of office hours so you can end your day and don't feel even in the evening that work is still calling you. So to have some kind of ritual in place. And then it's important to, you know, to, to not be glued to your devices in the evening, as we know that emits blue light and that keeps us awake and disrupts our sleep. And then, you know, go to sleep earlier rather than later so that um, you can be in line with your natural biorhythm. Have you found that over time you could maybe increase the stamina of that morning uh, meeting? Like, can you, like, it's it, it's kind of hard to get started, but I feel like if you get a routine going, you can maybe go from one hour to three to four hours. Is that kind of what you discovered as well? Yeah. And I think it's important to condition yourself. That's what many athletes do for peak performance. And I think mental athletes can do that as well. So I, for example, I, you know, I have a routine. First, my desk needs to be clean. Um, So I need to have like no distractions around me. It needs to be really clutter free. My door needs to be closed so nobody can come in and disrupt me. I turn off my phone, I put in headphones, I always listen to classical music, Bach in particular. And so my brain kind of knows when I set up this little routine, it's time to focus. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's good to always make it the same because then your brain will faster understand that now is the time to focus. And then of course, when you get into flow, you lose the concept of time and you can go on for longer. I think the important thing is to, have blocked this amount of time, but not to feel like you have to spend that amount of time. I tell myself, I'll, if I have trouble getting started, I'll tell myself, I do this now for one hour, one hour, and then I'm free. Like if I feel like a little bit of resistance, like I, I try to procrastinate. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes three hours later, I'm still on it and I'm completely in flow. But I like to tell myself I don't have to spend three hours. I can drop out after an hour if I want to, giving myself permission. That makes it easier so it doesn't feel like an endless activity. Hmm. We touched on this maybe briefly. So it seems like if you're doing these things to create dopamine yourself, you also want to be avoiding like cheap dopamine hits like your phone and social media. Do you do you kind of stay away from all of that until after lunch or any any good rules people could follow to make sure that they're, you know, not what and they're not getting dopamine from the wrong places too often? Yeah, we are all bombarded by dopamine overload, social media, all these, as you say, cheap dopamine. And I think it's good to schedule the times when you check emails. 
and to schedule the time you go on social media so that it's not an ongoing activity, so that you deliberately say, okay, now on this and this time of the day, I check it or not. I, you know, I really, you know, I check my email once in the morning and then I don't have to check it again. And that removes a lot of the back and forth. And then it's not taking up so much time. It's not as distracting. And I still, you know, everybody gets a response within a reasonable time frame. Um, so I think it's good to set boundaries and to really put it into your calendar for a limited amount of time. And it's good to, you know, I, for example, I post on social media, but I never consume it. I don't scroll. I don't browse. I don't, because once you start, you you get stuck there forever. And so I use a site blocker to keep myself from that. So I don't, you know, it's so easy to just quickly check and then half an hour later, um, you're still on it. So I think it's very important to to understand. That. And I think that's really, really important to limit yourself because we get addicted so quickly. And so we have to have good systems in place to, um, you know, block it. Um, so you've given a lot of great advice already, mainly for individuals, maybe even remote workers, but your book is more about the workplace. Tell me about the idea for the book and how you started to write this. The idea for the book originally was that I was thinking we think so much about diversity, you know, gender diversity, all these different types of diversity, but nobody is thinking about diversity of the brain. I mean, we have neurodiversity, but it's usually limited to people with, you know, some kind of autism on the spectrum or something like this but we don't think about the spectrum of different personalities in the workplace and when I looked into this I had a hypothesis to start with I was thinking you know the top leadership is often populated with high dopamine high testosterone people these are people who are very driven energetic highly stress resistant ambitious and that's great, but they create a work environment that's high stress, high pressure, lots of change, and that alienates what I call other neurosignatures, so people with another neurochemical profile. So that was the starting idea of my book. And so I looked into the data, and that's exactly what I found. And so my idea was to give people ideas on how they can increase brain diversity or what I call neurosignature diversity and identify different things companies can do to attract different talent. Because when everybody in your organization is um, high dopamine, high testosterone, yes, everybody's fast-paced, energetic, future-oriented, ambitious, but you kind of drain drain out and, and and almost like eliminate all the deep thinkers that people the kind of people who go deep into a topic and really think about it and who are not as dopamine driven in the moment so it's basically a blueprint for creating a more diverse workplace but not based on external factors but simply based on how different brains work What's one place you start? It seems like, is it like, is it similar to personality testing where it's kind of anonymous? Like where do you kind of start to learn who is who in a workplace? Yeah, well, in the book I describe, and maybe I can do it here, the different brain systems um, that determine our personality. Of course, there are tests you can take, but I don't think it's, I mean, 
it's good and they're good and valid instrument to test this, especially by a company called Neurocolor who gifted me their data. But I think for for you, for example, here, you don't have to now go and buy a test to find out uh, what makes you tick. So we all have, there are four brain systems we all have. So there's the dopamine system, the serotonin system, the testosterone system, and the estrogen system. And we all have all four of them. And it's your unique activity patterns that determines your personality. So let's get started with dopamine. Dopamine makes us future-oriented energetic, charismatic, often highly creative. So these are the kind of people who invent things, who plan for the future, who are like have high energy levels, often highly stress resistant. Then on the other hand, we have serotonin and serotonin makes us experience the here and now. So it makes you live in the moment. It makes you enjoy the moment. Um, People with an active serotonin system are often very reliable. They like to plan for the future. They're meticulous. These are qualities we need in the workplace. Imagine a workplace that is just filled with dopamine people. We need that balance. Um, so in a sense, it's their complementary skills associated with the dopamine in the serotonin system. And the same is true for testosterone and estrogen. We all have testosterone and estrogen. Of course, men have a more active testosterone system on average, but they're also about a third of women who have a very active testosterone system and a third of men who have a very active estrogen system. So it's not primarily about gender. Um, and so with testosterone, you will see people who are highly logical who like math and music and technology and have an interest in, in machines. Um, you will also see that people often can seem a bit very direct, almost rude, so a bit tough-minded. And with estrogen, you see people who have more of a focus on people, uh, often very um, good with words, very empathetic. So it's a bit the yin and the yang um, approach. And we all have all four brain systems, but the individual mix determines your personality. And I think when you know the traits associated with the system, you can figure out who you are simply by observing yourself more. And the same with other people, just by being observant and paying attention to what kind of words people are using, how they behave, what they really love to do, you will see where they fall in that spectrum. Hmm. So I work with some um, people. I try to help people break into freelance writing and I kind of give them the advice to go in there and be yourself. But what I mean by that is don't fake your personality because you're going to end up in a job you may not like. If you read old business books, they would tell you be extrovert, be that dopamine type testosterone person. Um, any advice for those people applying to jobs to like come in and, and feel confident that they can come in as themselves? I couldn't agree more. Uh, that's what I see so often that people use personality tests and all, to tell people to be more extrovert, et cetera. And that's exactly the message I'm giving in the book to not do that, to be yourself and to find a workplace that respects you as you are. I think that's what you should do. Don't lie in a job interview. I mean, you don't have to unveil all your darkest secret to a stranger, but I think stating, you know, who you are, what you're truly good at is so much better than pretending to be something you're not. Simply be yourself. 
Um, and I also think trust your gut feeling is important. From a brain perspective, your brain is a pattern recognition machine. So it will detect maybe subconsciously whether a job or the people you would be working with are a good fit for you. So if you go into a job interview, it's not just about making a good impression. It's also about observing how the people treat you, how they behave and whether you would really enjoy being there. Uh, we often just try to get the job when in reality, we should also use it as an opportunity to see whether we would feel good in that place and with these people. So I think it's um, even in times of stress and of, you know, a recession or something like this, you will always be better advised to follow your strength and to find a work environment that is in line with your strength and to go against your strength and just focus on your weaknesses. So I would go with those things, right? Be yourself. Yeah. Tell me about, um, I, I see like um, Ariana Huffington and some interviews in your book. How did you go about choosing who to interview and and then how did you kind of prepare yourself for those conversations? The interviews in my book, yeah, it's a funny process. Um, how did I come up? Well, some people just came to my mind when I thought about certain topics. So many of these people are from my personal network. Um, so they were already there. Um, in some cases, I talked to my speaking agent and she said, oh, this person comes to my mind. And so she introduced me to some of them. It was It was more... I didn't really have a strategy. It was more, I was thinking for each chapter, I'd like to interview somebody who somehow, who came to my mind when I thought about this chapter. And then, you know, I, I asked people whether they'd be interested. And then of course I prepared questions, things I was interested in. And sometimes the interview led me in completely different directions. I would say one of my, I mean, I loved all the interviews, but one of the funniest interviews was with um, Stephen Arstool of the five hour uh, workday. He's written that book. It's fabulous because I started my interview by saying, oh, I love your book. You know, how's the five hour workday going in your company? Because it's a chapter about reducing work hours. And then he said that he stopped it and, and told me why. And he has reintroduced it, but only during the summer months because people were getting complacent and people were getting a bit entitled and they kind of became lazy like work one minute more after 1 p.m they wouldn't do it and so i found that so refreshing i love when interviews are not just like rehearsed marketing kind of it was a real conversation so with many of them I had an idea where I wanted to go and then the interview went in a completely different direction. I think that's makes it so much more interesting. It seems to say a lot about his ego too, that he felt comfortable, like, well, it was, it was an experiment that we had to adjust as opposed to like putting his entire reputation on something and then seeing it as a failure. Yeah. I love that because sometimes when you interview people, they will just give you this glossy, it's a bit, you know, I personally love reading celebrity memoirs, like these, you know, like Paris Hilton's newest memoir or something like that. And 
sometimes these books are just like, I was so great at this. And then I won this award. And then I was great here. And then you kind of know, know from the tabloids that there has been drug abuse, plastic surgery, I don't know, five divorces. And when you see them not mentioned in the book, you just know they're lying to you. I mean, not not here to judge. I'm just saying it's not a good reader experience. You don't connect with the person when they really don't want to unveil anything personal or difficult when it's all just so perfect. Nobody is perfect. Nobody's life is perfect. So, you know, Paris Hilton's memoir, for example, I was really touched by her experience that she went through in that boarding school and what they did to her in that in that camp. I didn't expect it when I opened up the book. And so I really felt I connected with her in that book. And I think that's how these interviews should be. You shouldn't give people just this superficial, glossy version of yourself. That There's nothing to learn in, in those kind of conversations. Are there any things you do as the interviewer to kind of break the ice? Do you tell a personal story? Do you kind of present your own vulnerabilities in a certain way just to get the conversation going? Uh, I didn't in these interviews, but it was because most of the people I've knew before, I've known before, I had touch points with them. So I didn't have to introduce Mm -hmm. myself. And yeah, I was more, I was so curious to hear from them. And so I tried to, yeah, I didn't do anything special, I must say. But many of them, you know, knew me from before. So it wasn't like a complete cold call kind of started. Gotcha. What kind of led you in this direction? So, I mean, obviously you could go and, and do neuroscience and maybe keep your head down, but you want to go and speak and do TED Talks and write books. Is it just to get the information out there in the best way? Do you do you find, you know, your own joy in speaking and some of those things? That's funny because originally I wanted to do research. I had my mind on research. I really wanted to do just research. But when I was in the laboratory, I felt so stuck. I don't know. I just felt like I couldn't really reach my goal of understanding the brain or making like a breathtaking new discovery. It all felt very... And I'm not saying it's like this for other people. It's just me personally. I felt stuck. I felt confined. It was like the same laboratory every day, the same people. I felt like there was no contact with reality. And I'm sure other researchers have a completely different experience. I'm just saying that for me personally, I almost felt bored. I did feel bored. Okay. So, and so... I went out dancing one evening. That was also a fun coincidence. And I went to this event and this one guy said, you would be perfect for it. I said how frustrated I was in my laboratory and how you know frustrating it wasn't as exciting as I thought it would be. And then he said to me, you'd be perfect for working for McKinsey. And I said, Mac who, Mac what? Like what? I had no clue. And then I Googled it and I saw, oh, you know, like you travel the world and you consult companies and and I applied and started working there. It was a complete coincidence. I had no plan whatsoever. And in, when I was there, it was really a lot to learn. It was very interesting. But I discovered that the way people work is not in line with neuroscience at all. It was... 100-hour weeks, no sleep, no lunch, no dinner, lots of stress. And I was a bit shocked. And then for what I'm doing now, 
or since 15 years ago, actually, is I bring those two worlds together. So I kind of bridge the gap between the business world, which I you know, no, um, with neuroscience, which is my background. And I kind of like bringing the insights from neuroscience to the business world so that people don't have to work in these horrible ways and work much smarter, better and happier. Yeah, so it was a coincidence, but I really felt I have finally found my calling when I started, you know, keynote speaking and writing books. It just felt like me. Hmm. Yeah. We're almost out of time. You've given a lot of great advice already. We've mostly been talking about like things you can do today to help today, but obviously this is also, there's longevity in this. Can you maybe share some ideas about the benefits of sticking with some of these habits long-term? Of course. I think it's also important in a sense to, to build healthy habits for your brain, um, to really think about some activities won't feel good in the moment, but long-term they will really benefit you. Yeah. So delayed gratification, you know, and sticking to a plan despite. So I think it's good, for example, to build something that's called self-efficacy. Self-efficacy is the understanding that what you do will have an impact and I think the people who succeed are the ones who don't give up with a like a small uh, problem or something like this. I think you need to know where you want to go and you really need to know what your vision is for your future. And then when there's obstacles in your way, you need to have that feeling that you are in control. So it's like an internal, what is called locus of control. I think that's so important for your brain. And also when dealing with stress, there will be stressful moments. There will be moments when you don't feel like working out, when you don't feel like doing any deep work. Um, I think it's good to be connected to your future self and to have a vision of where you want to go because then you won't give up when things aren't going so well. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Before you take off, I want to give you a free gift. I'm giving you my first book, Ink by the Barrel, for free. That's the digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com. Inside this book, you'll learn how to annihilate writer's block by embracing Elizabeth Gilbert's playful trickster mentality. You can learn to weaponize your anxiety with Kevin Kelly's different is better approach. And learn how to defend your time with Ryan Holiday's calendar anorexia mindset. There's just a few other ideas in the book, Ink by the Barrel. It's also based on over 400 interviews I've done right here on Creative Principles. So go steal that book right now, Ink by the Barrel, to learn how to be a prolific writer. You can get your copy that's digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com, B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com. If it's your first time here, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode.